This episode of the Bamboo Pastors Podcast has been brought to you by the Growth Center for Church and Mission. The Growth Center has established the Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader, a ministry ecosystem which brings together pastors, ministry leaders, and marketplace leaders who are finding creative ways to utilize their faith and their talents to bring the gospel to the cities and communities they live in. Check them out at thegrowthcenter.com. Welcome to the Bamboo Pastors Podcast, a podcast that explores the joys and challenges of being an English-speaking pastor in a Chinese church. I'm Jalen Chan, and I'm here with my co-host, John Mon. Hey, everyone. Together, we host the Bamboo Pastors Podcast. We're glad that you're here with us. Come on in and have a seat at the table. All right, friends and listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Bamboo Pastors Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us. I'm here with John. John, how are you doing? What's up, Jalen? It's good to be on with you and really excited for to record another episode of the podcast. Um, I, I'm doing pretty well. This week has been uh, a, a, a fun week. Actually, we just kicked off the first um, weekend of our three week mission conference. Um, most of our you know events for the conference speakers and stuff are it's mostly on the weekends, but it's it's packed weekends, lots of different things going on, lots of people coming through. Um, and I just love connecting with some of our international workers who are uh, on home assignment, hearing about what God is doing in those places, finding out ways that we can continue to partner with partner with them. Um, so it's been really good. We this first week was a it was a blessing. What about you? How have you been? Yeah, that's really cool. Actually, our church this is our missions emphasis month as well, and so we've been having a lot of uh, you know obviously because of COVID and because of our international workers being in different places, we have a lot of actually actually like video updates, and so they've been sending in video updates, and it's been really cool to to hear from them and um, you know just just see how things are how things have changed and how ministry is happening all over the world in the middle of COVID, and uh, so it's it's exciting. It's yeah, but it's kind of cool that, you know, both of our churches are doing our missions emphasis month. And, uh, but uh, yeah, so yeah, same, same here. Just a lot of things going on, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of things happening on the weekends, but I'm excited also that this coming weekend, uh, my oldest son, as you know, is in sixth grade. And so he's starting youth group um, oh, this man. weekend. So he's oh, really man. excited. Uh, you know, for, you know, for us as a church, we're still looking for a youth pastor. And so, uh, we've got, you know, just a handful of volunteers who are helping out with that, but, uh, really excited about, you know, things that are happening with our youth group. And, uh, we just have like really good students. And so I'm excited that my oldest is starting in on that. And I know for you as a former youth pastor and just, you know, just a good friend to our family, that's a meaningful milestone for us. So, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's, man, that's so exciting. I, I think I just, it's mind boggling. Cause I remember when he had just been born and watching him grow up, I can't believe that he's in youth group already. And like, you know, up to, the, I'm sure we'll eventually be up to all the shenanigans that youth group kids get into. Uh, but my hope is just that, that that time is so formative for him that God really just grabs hold of his heart and uh, yeah, calls him into deeper life with Jesus. Mm. So what a great milestone you know, looking forward to the rest of the kids one by one following him into the youth group. That'll be exciting for your church, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of exciting things, um, I'm really excited for our guest today. Uh, our guest is Reverend Andrew Lee. Uh, Reverend Lee is a retired pastor. He has served in many different places, many different churches. Uh, his most recent stop was as the senior pastor of Chinese Christian Union Church um, in Chicago's Chinatown. 
but now also he's serving as the associate director of the Global Diaspora Institute, which is out of uh, the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. So, um, Reverend Lee, we're just so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much, John and Jalen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited that you're here. And uh, as, as we begin, you know, we usually ask all our guests to share just briefly your ministry journey, your calling. Um, what was it like getting into ministry and serving uh, at all these different churches? Well, I was raised in a Christian home and I began contemplating the call to ministry during my high school years. But I eventually accepted the call when I was a sophomore in college. And I decided that, that I needed to transfer to a Christian college. And there was a nearby Christian college, Nyack College, Christian Missionary Alliance denomination. Uh, so that's near and dear to John's heart. Uh, but I was not aware it was a CNMA school until after uh, I enrolled. After college, uh, I went on to seminary. Uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, because uh, my pastor at the time had also gone to Southwestern. It's rather well known uh, among the pastors in Hong Kong. After graduating from seminary, I said, I didn't, I didn't learn enough, and uh, especially about the Old Testament. So I went on to Baylor University to do my PhD in religion with an emphasis in Old Testament studies. Uh, after that, I uh, began my ministry, my first church as English pastor, and it was really small. It had about 20 people at that time, and the younger ones were maybe in sixth grade. Uh, over the course of 14 years, we kept growing and growing and growing, but uh, it was there that I really cut my teeth on being a pastor, learning how to preach, uh, making uh, lots of mistakes. And having no one basically mentor me, you know, I was you know, one of the pioneers, so to speak. That's what one person said about me, which is a nice way of saying I'm old. Uh, there was really uh, hardly anyone uh, to, to talk to about these things back then. After 14 plus years, I had my midlife crisis. So I went into seminary teachings, a faculty member of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, but at the same time, I was also director of theological education for the Northeast Baptist School of Ministry. Uh, so uh, Southern had off-campus centers, uh, four off-campus centers among the five state conventions in the Northeast. So I would be the main on-site administrator. I would uh, teach as well as uh, having uh, professors from Southern come up to teach. So we had centers in Maryland, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, New York City, and Boston. After that, then I went on to oversee Chinese missions, the main church in New York City. It's the largest Chinese church uh, in New York, and I was the lead English pastor there. And not lo long after I took on that role, they asked me to become the interim senior pastor. And according to their constitution, the senior pastor has to speak Mandarin. So right off the bat, you know, that wasn't even anything for it. Yeah, to consider for any of us, but I was the interim uh, senior for several years, including when 9-11 struck. So uh, we went through all that and it was a very difficult time. You know, the 20th anniversary just took place earlier this week. Uh, after OCM, uh, I went to work with Isaac, the Institute for the Study of Asian American Christianity. And uh, in addition to that, I was an adjunct at Gordon Conwell in their boss in their New York program to Hispanic students, also New Brunswick Theological Seminary, 
So with the Isaac work and uh, being an adjunct professor that took care of a couple of years till finally I came to Chicago, moved to Chicago to become senior pastor at CCUC. So now uh, I've retired from full-time pastoral ministry. It's stressful enough, so I think it's time to retire. Mm -hmm. And what I do at Wheaton is a retirement ministry, which I enjoy doing. Thanks for sharing with us um, just your journey. You know, something that you said earlier um, was that you were pastoring at the largest church in New York uh, in a lead role during 9-11. And I know for myself and for Jalen, that event shaped our uh, my teenage years and his his college years um, in such a profound way. Um, and, and like you said, the 20th anniversary, uh, at least at the time of recording this, was just um, uh, two weekends ago. Um, I, I was wondering if you could maybe share just a little bit more about uh, what it was like leading at that church during that season. Um, I mean, I, we, I think both of us can already imagine how incredibly hard it must have been. Um, but were there things that, that God was teaching you or teaching your church during that time? Well, I think the lesson there was to be available because I was in my office early that morning. And at 846, when the first plane struck the tower, what I heard was this huge bang and uh, my office shook. And I thought it was due to construction uh, up the street, there's New York City. Not that there was any construction taking place at the time, but I couldn't uh, figure out what was causing my office to shake and to hear such a loud bang. Well, the church uh, sexton, not sure what the correct term is for that in a Chinese church, but uh, he doesn't speak English very well, Mandarin, Shanghainese, and he came to tell me that a plane had struck the tower. I mean, I didn't think anything of it because not that long ago, a small plane had clipped the building in New York City. So I thought that's all that had happened. But then after the second plane struck the second tower and he came to tell me that, I knew it wasn't a coincidence. So I went up to the roof of our church. It's nine stories high, the church building. It's the tallest building in our zoned area. And I could see the bright orange flames uh, licking at the World Trade Center on a cloudless blue sky. It was an absolutely beautiful day and all you could see were flames shooting out. So immediately I canceled staff meetings, which were on Tuesdays, and uh, we began setting up, you know, TV, telephones, uh, assuming that people would come in, and they did. Church members began walking in uh, after they managed to escape the tower. By afternoon's time, uh, some of them came in uh, with soot because they were caught in the dust clouds that uh, were created when the buildings fell. So it was a very, very difficult time for us. My son was uh, attending Stuyvesant High School, which was very close uh, to the World Trade Center. So I heard on the radio that I should go down, get my, you know, get my son and couldn't do it. They blocked us after several block, you know, several blocks away from the World Trade Center. And afterwards, you know, he got back home. I, I knew he'd be okay. Just didn't know how long it would take. My younger daughter uh, was new to New York City. We had just moved into the, that area. For her, at 14 years old and under five feet tall, you know, 13 years old actually, I think, under five feet tall. But she's pretty tough. So eventually, she made it home too, walking uh, that distance. But it was really difficult for church members. Uh, it was just a very solemn time and all the electricity 
where most electricity was cut off on the other side of Canal Street, which is one of the main thoroughfares in Manhattan's Chinatown. Uh, we were on the other side, what used, uh, which is Little Italy. So we had power, but it was just uh, a very different type of scene and it really affected the economy of Chinatown. And I think it helped spread gentrification in Chinatown because businesses could not stay uh, afloat, particularly the garment district, because they couldn't get deliveries. Yeah, that's, you know, just that's an incredible, uh, you know, recounting and just to, just to hear again, just the, the impact that, that had. And, you know, something you said earlier was, you know, just learning to be available. And, you know, for us as pastors and for those of us in ministry, you know, these, these are, these are, these are situations where, you know, we're not, you know, at least I feel like we're not always prepared to know exactly what to do or what to say. And, and, and simply just being available is an incredible ministry for people. And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that God had you there and that you, you guys were able to, you know, open the doors and have, have, have people in your congregation, uh, be able to come in and, and for you to minister to them. Um, that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing that you guys were able to do as you reflect on that. And then as you kind of, uh, as we move to sort of another, um, ministry, you also served, uh, in Chicago at CCUC Chinese Christian union church, which is also the largest church in Chicago. Uh, you know, most of our listeners probably serve in, in smaller churches or in, um, average size Chinese churches, which probably aren't that big. And so you have a unique perspective, you know, having served in the largest church in New, Chinese church in New York and the largest Chinese heritage, heritage church in Chicago. Uh, what are some of the main differences? Or what are some big differences that you see between being at a, at a church like uh, OCM or at a church like CCUC versus more of the average size Chinese church? Uh, resources are much fewer in the smaller churches, unless you happen to be uh, in one of those wealthy suburban Chinese churches. But in both of those churches that I served in, they were Chinatown churches. So money was not as readily available and you were still very careful, but you still had resources. Uh, I remember uh, when the projectors came out to use in worship services, what one pastor commented, because uh, you know I was all for it. And uh, fortunately we had someone in the church who was uh, very gung-ho about making sure that uh, we were able to uh, purchase one of these projectors. Well, one of the uh, other pastors in New York said, well, even OCM has an LCD projector. You know, so I guess that was uh, you know, his opinion of OCM, but we had the resources to do it. So that was uh, very helpful. Church ministry, however, is still very much the same. Uh, say I learned how to be a pastor in a small church until it grew larger, and uh, some of those lessons remain the same. So aside from resources, I think another uh, big difference is the number of young adults that you might have, and it's been very difficult for smaller Chinese churches to retain their young adults. The larger ones uh, have a bigger uh, pool to select from. And at OCM in New York, you know, our growth was spurred by young adults. It, it was not a family church. Uh, it's a New York City church. And we grew 
tremendously. We grew two to three times in the seven years I was there. Uh, we had we were in the 500s in worship service by the time I left in English service. And that was fueled by young adults with very few ties, familiar, familial ties to the church. And that it worked, you know, the ministry grew because we had that critical mask of young adults uh, that people could find fellowship, they could find a place of belonging. And some of these friendships are still very strong to this day. You take a look at Facebook and you see who comments on whom. And so the ties are still there, even if people have moved out of New York City. You know, I wanted to uh, follow up with, with you on that because, you know, at my church here, one of my responsibilities has been serving with the young adult ministry. And, um, you know, I, like you said, I think having a critical mass is, is very important and um, I think allows for people to experience belonging, um, though I think Jalen and I would both recognize that if a church stays that way, then eventually it just, you know, continues to uh, age up with a certain age demographic. And, and so there has to be some connection with, with the larger church, with the rest of the church. Um, but, but what I'm curious about is what were some of the things that you were doing uh, with OCM or with CCUC that really, I think, ministered specifically to young adults that you found were uh, valuable ways to really um, care for them, to pastor them well, um, to lead them? Were there any things in particular that you were doing? We made sure there was room in the sanctuary because we started growing. And I said, we, I started exploring having second service. So our first service was, uh, I think, 9.45 in the morning. We wouldn't be able to get back into the sanctuary to 1.45, which is an ungodly hour to, to have worship service right after lunch. Uh, but we, what I did was I moved all the middle school out of adult worship so that they would have their own separate worship service. And then we moved the high school students into the second service to start the second service. So at the beginning, there were maybe 40 or 50 high school students, but by the time I left, uh, the average attendance was close to 200 in that 145 service and the adults far outnumbered the high school students by then. So providing a place where they could worship and believe it or not, the 145 became attractive for young adults who like to sleep in after Saturday night activities, so, so that worked. But uh, especially having the Friday night activities, uh, this is when fellowship took place, Friday nights, that was the uh, sweet spot. And we had fellowship groups divided by age, and I think you're familiar with those. Friday night was the big night, and they would come to church, and they would have their fellowship meetings, they would have small group meetings, Bible studies. Friday night was a, was a big thing. But uh, the church building was open seven days a week, and we would have people coming in the church buildings, reserving rooms for doing this or that. And so that, that really helped, I think, the availability. And I like to think that the worship was good and the preaching was good. I like to think that, whether it's true or not, I think that's always very helpful. Uh, but these young adults were able to find ministries to serve in uh, that I felt was meaningful to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think engaging your young people in not just to consume what the church is kind of giving them through worship and through teaching, but to also uh, to give and to participate in the work that God is doing in that church really engages people. So 
thank you for that insight. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking, like, you have served in pastoral ministry for a significant number of years, but I think that has afforded you um, just the ability to see how the church has changed, especially the Chinese Heritage Church. With that perspective, as you look back on the different places you've served or even places that you've heard of or partnered with over the years, what are some things about the Chinese Heritage Church that have really encouraged you, you know, over the seasons that you've uh, pastored? Well, this might seem a little flippant, but as I tell certain pastors, there's always a job for you. You talk about trying to find a job. Hey, they need pastors. And they'll come looking, uh, not saying that's necessarily a good church situation, but uh, the churches will want you. There's a tremendous need out there. Uh, and, and that's encouraging in the sense that we, we continue to have immigration. So the English ministries are still thriving because uh, in, in the sense that there's a tremendous need. And whereas uh, I think I was one of the early ones to work in a church with a full-time English pastor, uh, nowadays, that's an expectation. You expect people to have uh, English language staff. That's been a change. Uh, the, I think the receptivity uh, and understanding that pastors are needed. Uh, so that's an encouragement. And again, the fact that the ministry is still there. We haven't gone the way of other uh, immigrant churches where the second generation just gets assimilated into the dominant church and you know those churches you know scandinavian churches german churches uh, they die out that's not happening to the chinese church yeah i think that's you know that's a good insight and that's something that certainly we provide some of us little job security right but also i think it 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 definitely points to the uniqueness of chinese heritage churches and the need as you said for english ministries in chinese churches and um, you know kind of flip question of what john asked you uh, Throughout your years of ministry in the Chinese Heritage Church, um, certainly you've seen some encouraging things, but what are some concerns that you see, um, you know, maybe down the line or, or even now, what are some things that are concerning for you in the Chinese Heritage Church? Basically, the same problems are still there. If you go back to the writings of FACE, Fellowship of Asian American Chinese Evangelicals, uh, you go look at those old issues, a lot of the Conflicts are still there, the intergenerational conflict, the uh, differences in uh, ministry philosophy, uh, the power inequity, uh, it's still there. And the problem is that if you go to uh, most Chinese language churches and you ask them uh, whether they need a consultant to help them with the English ministry, most of them will say no. You know, they don't need help because they don't want to admit that they need help. They think they We'll do it differently, but uh, probably not. You're probably going to have the same issues, same problems. And this, this has led to a mass migration of, of young adults. It's a tremendous problem, as I alluded to earlier. So that now we're getting people who grow up in the heritage church, but then they leave uh, post-college. So now what happens to the children and the teens that are still there? You just basically have to start all over again. And their role models have left. And uh, the Heritage Church has basically uh, been left on, on its own or on her own. So they're going to other models of churches. And actually this week, in the process of writing a grant, see if we can get money to do some 
research on this nationwide. So if we get it, I'll be paying you a visit in California, John. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, I, I really hope that you do get that because um, it, I just find, at least as I've, the longer I'm serving in, in the Chinese church, the more that uh, I find not knowing our history and uh, only maybe understanding like our local church experience is a disservice to to the work that we want to do. Um, like having a better understanding of what the church has gone through, what the Chinese church has gone through really helps me minister in my own context because I'm learning with and from all sorts of different people. And um, yeah, so we look forward to, to the results of any work that you do with that. Um, but I, I wanted to pivot though. I don't think it's that big of a pivot um, from what we just talked about, but after uh, retiring from CCUC, you stepped into a role as the associate director at the Global Diaspora Institute. And um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about what that organization is and what they do and, and how did your work in the Chinese church lead you to serving in this new ministry area? Well, the director, uh, Sam George, who's Indian, and Sam is known around the world, I think, for diaspora missions. So he asked me if I want to come aboard and so that was pretty easy uh, to do that. And I think what's been helpful is my experience with second generation, uh, because you're gonna find the same issues with other ethnic churches. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, Egyptian, Nigerian, uh, a lot of the problems are the same. As a matter of fact, if you look at the second generation of Hindus, you're gonna have the same problems. Second generation Buddhists, you might, you probably will have the same issues. It's the disconnect, I think, between uh, the first and second generation and the cultural uh, disconnect as well. So you have a, an, an age gap and you have a cultural gap. But I feel that you know, where I can really help at uh, GDI is with experience, my experience with second generation. Yeah, you mentioned that there's, there, there is a lot of overlap and I'm sure that certainly that cultural and age gap uh, we're going to find as you look at different cultures or you look at different um, people groups, a lot of those, there will be overlap, as you said. What, what unique contributions does the Chinese Heritage Church have to offer to the global church in, in learning about, you know, how to do ministry well? Uh, I don't know if it's unique, but I think their heart for missions, especially reaching their kinsmen, other Chinese, this is where they are uh, the most well-equipped to reach uh, Chinese for Christ. Uh, I think Chinese churches are very much interested in doing evangelism and missions work to the Chinese around the world. So at OCM, we had a missions pastor, you know, a, a specific job for someone to do missions and to lead the mission teams and help uh, mission teams go out around the world uh, to serve. So uh, that I think is uh, perhaps one of the unique contributions. Again, I don't know if this second factor is necessarily unique, but just the sacrifice that uh, ABCs are willing to undertake to, to serve in ministry. Again, when I was at OCM, I had very few English staff, and yet we grew to the size because of all the lay people who were so interested in serving and being, being willing to serve. Uh, and even the youth counselors at CCUC, how much time do they spend uh, with the youth? And the two of you are 
uh, products of that youth ministry and have been involved in that ministry yourself. So you understand just the time commitment and the dedication and sacrifice. On a slightly different note, uh, CCUC started the Puitak Center, the social services center, uh, which ministers, to, I think, to about 1,400 different individuals a year, mainly through English classes. Uh, so it's a social service model that I think uh, other immigrant churches probably uh, try to imitate in some way, but I think Puitak has been especially successful in doing so. For our listeners who may be uh, unfamiliar with the Puitak Center, um, that's just a part of the ministry that CCUC does, and it's right there in the heart of Chinatown. And so they continue to, to serve um, new immigrants and new people coming into that area, into that neighborhood um, with, like you said, English classes and, and other things like that. So I agree. I think that the global church can learn a lot from you know how the Chinese Heritage Church has continued to serve um, new immigrants and uh, continue to really pursue people um, with the gospel uh, or pursue their own people with the gospel. Um, I was wondering, just as as you've served and worked with um, with GDI, ha- have there been any helpful resources that you've heard of, or maybe that you've even produced that uh, would be a benefit or an encouragement to the the Chinese Church? Well, Sam's been very instrumental in editing several books about uh, refugee work, and I'm not sure that Chinese churches are quite aware of the refugee problem. Think about 82 million that are refugees. The number of refugees in the world right now is is absolutely staggering number. And uh, one of the resources I think if people want to learn a bit, a little bit more about that, is the film Jesus in Athens. So JesusinAthens.org. Uh, you can watch the trailer on YouTube, and uh, it will give you a glimpse of what's how God is serving refugees. The early church was forced to be a refugee church, right? The persecution, Acts 8, it drove the church out of Jerusalem. And some of them became internal refugees. They went to other parts of the country uh, and the gospel spread. Others went outside of Israel and the gospel spread. So the church was on the move. Jesus himself was a refugee, right? For a period of time, he fled to Egypt to escape. So refugees, it's an issue that has been with us for millennia. And scripture tells us to care for the refugees, to treat them fairly. I'm not sure that the Chinese church necessarily understands that. Uh, We're very Sinocentric, concentrate on our kind. Uh, We need to be willing to reach out to others. So in terms of resources, going back to your question, You've got Jesus in Athens. You might want to take a look at that, uh, jesusinathens.org. That would be helpful. Some of the books on our uh, website, uh, globaldiasporainstitute.org. You can take a look at some of that. Then we have, uh, occasionally we have webinars. Uh, We have an MA, a Master of Arts in Christian Leadership with a Global Christianity Cohort. We just received approval for that. But it's actually been very difficult uh, getting uh, ethnic pastors that are non-Asian uh, to enroll at Wheaton. Uh, I think part of it is uh, the cost, the cost factor, but that is available for church leaders if they want to learn more about um, global Christianity. And we may uh, also begin offering certificate program in that. 
so you know, th those are just some of the things we, we've been doing. Uh, two weeks ago, we were part of the Lausanne Global Summit. So we had people from around the world zooming in and we had speakers uh, talk about migration, uh, the pandemic and missions. And that had an attendance, uh, we think of probably about six to 700 people. So, you know, these opportunities are there to look outside our four walls, outside our Jerusalem, wherever we are situated, and to consider uh, what's going on in the world and how we can be a part of alleviating the refugee crisis. Yeah, that's such a good word and a, uh, such a good reminder for us as Chinese Heritage Churches uh, to be a part of that work. And we do have a history in that. And, and it it's important for us as, as Chinese heritage churches to be part of uh, the, the work that God is doing in serving refugees. And, you know, we're, we're grateful for the work that you're doing at GDI and thankful for your years of ministry serving as a pastor. Uh, we're grateful for your faithful leadership. And uh, as you said, you know, being a pioneer for us as, you know, um, English pastors and pastors in Chinese heritage churches. We really appreciate that. As we close out, we always ask our guests one final question. Um, what's one encouragement you would give someone currently serving in the Chinese heritage church? I think the greatest contribution you can make as a pastor is to persevere and impact their lives as a good shepherd. And that doesn't happen without investing years in a congregation, developing the relationships. So uh, if I could encourage them to hang in there, I know it's not easy. I think hardly any church is easy. The difficulties are exacerbated by language and cultural differences, but you're going to be able to make an impact on people's lives. And for yourself, it's good for your character development. It's as you serve, uh, despite the difficulties, that you also grow as a believer and you grow in your skills, uh, you grow as a, as a man or a woman in Christ. So that would be my encouragement that you the longer you're there up to a certain point, I think the greater impact you can make on the lives of your sheep. What a fantastic um, just reminder to us and to all of our listeners of the value of longevity in, in a place and really, like you said, building thick relationship with the people that you're serving so that you can pastor well. We appreciate that encouragement, that advice um, that you've given to us. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us, Reverend Lee. Very welcome. Thank you. That's the end of our episode. Thanks for joining us today on the Bamboo Pastors Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the pod on whatever platform you listen to us on. Rate and review us and check in every week as we explore the joys and challenges of ministry in the Chinese church. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bamboo Pastors. See you next time.